Thank you. Um, we're very glad to be here. I, I'm sorry it was so late. I, um, we got delayed uh, actually both ways. We got delayed on the first leg of the flight and then uh, mostly in Chicago because of bad weather over Chicago. Um, so that's, uh, that's why. Anyway, it's very nice to be back with you all, and um, I will um, try to uh, do justice to the uh, gift which we have all been given and the task with which we have all been entrusted. I want to read from the Bible, um, Gospel according to Luke, section that Master Kripal Singh used to quote a great deal, three different uh, parts of it. He quoted them all, actually, different times, not necessarily all together. This is from chapter 10. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And Master Kripal used to um, quote each of those sections to make perhaps slightly different points. But if we think about it, um, we will notice, we will see that what is being talked about here, what underlies what Jesus is saying, and also what underlies a great many things that other masters have said too, is the shifting of the point of view which um, is required in order to be able to have the full benefit of that which we have been given. And that shifting of the point of view is partly it is done as we find out that there is such a thing as a spiritual teaching, that the truths of religion are not really dependent on the things which the wise men of the world, the ones 
whom the truth is hidden from, you see, um, that it is not just tied up with those things that those people think is important. It's instead something that people like us, you know, babes, okay? And a babe, after all, in this context, is someone who doesn't know much, right? Kind of a simpleton. This is the point here, okay? That which the people of the world, the wise people, St. Paul also has a, a long section in First in Corinthians where he talks about this. He tells the Corinthians, you know, you're not very wise. You don't know much. And... Uh, and there's a reason for that, because if you did, you wouldn't be able to have done what had to be done in order to get that which you have. And similarly, uh, when the Master comes, in order to recognize him, in order to see that this is the pole through which the living God is dealing with us in this world, to see that that is the case requires such an enormous displacement, or we could even say explosion, of our normal assumptions. Because everybody knows that that isn't the way it works. And yet, if we're babes, you see, then we have a chance to see, yeah, well, maybe it is the way it works. And maybe there is something to this. And maybe this person that I feel this love for and that I see this holiness from, maybe that person really is the son through whom the Father is working. It was true in Jesus' day and is true now. In both cases, in order to come to the feet of the living Master, in order to be willing to accept what he has to give, we um, we have to turn the world topsy-turvy because, like I said before, everybody knows different. It's, it's uh, the assumptions all point the other way. If we, if we read the Bible carefully, this is probably true of a, of a great many religious traditions also, but in the case of the Bible, if we read it carefully, we will see that this is actually very characteristic. That throughout, the assumption is that God is with the most insignificant people, the most unprepossessing prophets. After all, who is it that he made the chosen people, according to the Bible? Slaves, right? people who are nothing as far as the world was concerned, the absolute bottom. They were working, building pyramids and statues and things in the Nile Delta. They were nothing. And he rescued them and made them his own. Perhaps precisely because they were nothing, he was able to do that. Similarly, when the prophet Amos is being challenged. He says, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. I was a herdman, 
and a grower of fruit. And God came to me and made me do it. It was laid on me, the burden. The prophets used to use the term, the burden was laid. The burden of this, the burden of that. It's a, a, a load that is laid on the most unlikely people by worldly point of view. And that load that was given to them is actually the grace of God, the same grace of God that has been given to us. And we are also unlikely people. And, um, and thank God that we are, because if we weren't, we probably wouldn't have got, we wouldn't have got what God has seen fit to give us. So we can, we can, as Jesus said, we can rejoice that he has hidden these things from all the people who know better, right? And he has revealed them unto the idiots, us. We are the ones. We don't deserve it. We have no claim on it. But there it is. If the grace of God is there and the love of God is handed to us, on a silver platter, why should we not take it? So um, this is the way in the fallen universe, this is the way that the positive power, the God of love and mercy and forgiveness, the God who is the soul of our soul, the essence of our essence, the being of our being, this is the way he chooses to work. And we are the fortunate ones that we are the beneficiaries of that. Anyway, if so, people, I've sometimes been accused of reducing, I don't, let me, I'm not sure I can get this right, what I've, exactly what I've been accused of, of talking as though the whole apparatus, I guess you could say, the whole structure, the whole history of Christianity is there only for only for the living master, right? This is that it's it's all turned around and inverted, so to speak, so that the the um, you know, I, I see it all, I see all the whole biblical history, theology system as subsidiary, you might say, to the living master uh, moving about amongst us. And yes, I do do that, you know, I do. And this is the way that everybody in the Bible does too. If we look at it, the problem is that when we come to it with preconceptions uh, given to us, church, Sunday school, whatever, um, you know, it all seems different. Moses, for example, um, it's very clear, you know, that, that I mean, when you, I mean, just in our thought, right? Moses knew what he was doing and, and everything was great and, and uh, a very competent person and, and very um, um, awesome, you know, we would think like that. And no doubt he was, he was certainly, he would have struck us, no doubt, as very holy for sure. 
But from the point of view of Moses and the rest of the world, so to speak, after all, um, he didn't want to do it, number one. He apparently had a speech impediment, number two. Uh, he was leading a group of very motley people who had absolutely nothing going for them from a worldly sense, the absolute bottom of the ladder. Same kind of people, of course, that, that Jesus also um, ministered to and that the living masters have always been attracted to when they come because they are the people who will listen. People who will be, are willing to be led out of slavery are the people who know that they're slaves. If you don't think you're a slave, then how on earth are you going to listen to anybody who wants to make you free? Is he t he's talking about me? I'm, I'm free already. What do, I, what, do I, what do I need help for? We think like that. But if we know that we are trapped in the fallen universe, that we are stuck in the land of Egypt, in the house of slavery, then we have some appreciation for the fact that somebody loves us enough and cares about us enough to take us out of that. So um, Moses, you know, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll see that everything went wrong. Nothing, he, he couldn't do anything right. He started off by, by offending God. Right, he said, uh, kept saying, "I can't do it, and I can't uh, talk, and and give me some help, and, and have somebody else talk for me." So uh, his brother Aaron was given to him, but that was not the original plan. And um, then uh, he goes; he's able to meet Pharaoh, presumably because he had been a member of the of the royal family at one time. And the first thing he does is make everything infinitely worse. You know, of all the failures in the Bible, and for that matter, of all the failures in, um, in, in all spiritual traditions, it may well be that that first monumental goof of Moses, where he um, demanded, he did what God had told him to do, and uh, Pharaoh laughed at him and said that uh, the, the Israelites were getting very lazy, so they should now keep their same tally of bricks, but they would have to make them without straw. How must Moses have felt when that, when that happened? He's forced to say, you know, he's forced to say, I... Um, I went in to try to get you free, but I only ended up by making it much worse. You know, who, who, can, who can fathom the, the complete and total disbelief that everyone must have felt? What is going on here? This is, this is God's messenger? I mean, he, he went in to get us out and this is what's happened? and so forth and so on. Of course, we know that it wasn't Moses' fault and that he didn't uh, really goof, that it was just the way that it all had to work out. But it doesn't seem like that, of course, when the thing is happening.
And, you know, it continued on like that. I mean, there were, the account is full of things that went wrong. Things didn't work well. And he was constantly forced to, to make choices. Sometimes it seemed no choice that he could make would be a good one. And we know from, in retrospect that he was absolutely, exactly the right person to do what God wanted him to do at the time. That's very clear. But it sure wasn't clear to him while it was happening. And it wasn't clear to other people either. And um, it certainly wasn't clear to the wise people of the world. And again, it was revealed to the babes. So I would say that, um, that the living master, whoever and wherever he is, invariably does turn the assumptions of the tradition that he finds himself working out of on their heads. And the whole, the whole system of that tradition does become, you might say, his tool. Master Kripal used to say that the scriptures are handy aids in the hands of the master. He can use, because they all contain the teachings, he can use them for that purpose. He can take the teachings, find them in the various scriptures, Show people, yes, yeah, see, this is what it says here, this is what it says there, like that. See, it really is like this. He will do that, and um, this is what they're for. This is the purpose of the scriptures. This is basically what... If we study the Sermon on the Mount carefully, we will see that this is what, um, exactly what Jesus was doing when he gave that sermon. He was, it's a, a commentary on the Torah, on the five books of Moses, basically. And he picks out that which is relevant to his mission, that which counts in reference to what he came to do, namely to lead those people who understood their true situation, maybe not consciously, maybe not articulately, but um, maybe only instinctively, but still in their heart of hearts, they understood that this is what they were born to do, was to be led out of slavery by the Word made flesh, by the living Master, through whom the living God of love, the positive power, the God of forgiveness, the Dial, through whom that God was working. And they understood this and were taken up by Him. And that is what all the Masters do that is what they are born to do. The God of love and mercy cannot rest until all his children are back with him. That is why he keeps coming after us.
the most perfect expression of this is in the ocean of love, the long section, the heart of the poem of Dharamdas's Dharamdas being chased by Kabir through lifetime after lifetime, the cosmic chase, right? He will not let him go. He doesn't want to come back. It doesn't matter. He'll keep trying anyway because he loves him. Why does he love him? Because he exists. He is a human being. Actually, God doesn't only just love humans. He is a living soul in whom the spark of God is found, through whom the love of God can overflow. And um, he will not stop until he is back. And that's the way with each of us. You know, we are the children of the living God. He loves us. That love that he has for us is the core of our being. You know, it's what makes us us. It is what gives us our, our dignity, you might say. Why each person has to be respected. When Master Kripal Singh wrote that we have something to learn from everybody, there is a purpose behind every person born into the world. This is the mystery of humility. This is what he was saying. This is the point of it. We are to love our neighbor as ourself because our neighbor is ourself. Our neighbor and us are children of the same God whom we have to love with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. That's what is given to us, is the commandment to do that. With the commandment to do it comes the grace to make it happen. The God of love does not give commandments that cannot be followed. When the living master speaks, whether 2,000 years ago or today, what he says is accompanied by the grace that enables it to come true. When Jesus said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Master Kripal Singh said, each of us has the birthright to become God, I tell you. They're saying the same thing. This is what is in store for us if we open ourselves up to the grace that will make it possible. And that is the point of the whole thing. It's the purpose of the human birth. It's the purpose of all the masters who have come, of all the scriptures that have been written. It's the purpose of the master giving initiation. It is basically what happens when we take the initiation is that the love of God touches the love that is within us at the very heart of our hearts.
And because they are the same love, they unite. And that is the, the psychological meaning of initiation. There are other meanings of it too, of course, but that's psychologically speaking, I think we can put it like that. So these are the things, excuse me, the masters um, come to do. Right? Sanji has said that he has come down to love. Actually, he said we have all come down to love. And um, the master just is the one who does it the best. You know? But what he's doing is not different than what we should be doing too. Our purpose is also to love. Commandment to love is given to all of us, not just to the masters. The fact that they do it, they can do it. They are not hung up in their own needs, you see, or their own fears or their own desires, so that they are prevented from doing it. That's a very sweet thing, and we learn from that. But that doesn't mean that we are not to love just because we can't do it perfectly. We must love. Commandment is very clear. If you love me, keep my commandments. And right after that, what, well, what are the commandments? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. Hmm? Uh, Master Kripal Singh used to have, if you love me, keep my commandments framed on his porch at Sawan Ashram in Delhi, where I have often seen it. And uh, when we talk about love for the Master, the end of the initiation instructions, he says, respect my words more than my body. That will give you real lasting good. Be sincere to your own self. God is in you and the Master is also in you, and you will receive help. We really will. God is within us. The Master also really is within us. And the help is always there. The more we realize, the more our angle of vision is modified, the more our assumptions pointing in other directions are exploded, then the more help we can take, you see. When we're totally hung up in our own obsessions, then it's like there isn't any help. But if we can um, rise above them, right, then we can see that the grace is surrounding us, right? We are living in the middle of the ocean of love, which is not spatially anywhere other than right here, you know, wherever we are. So these are the things that babes can get and wise people cannot. So the I had a professor when I was at Harvard Divinity School, had a professor who in the New Testament theology class, 
he went into this point of view. He pointed out, which is where I got it from, uh, that the the entire biblical witness is for the toward the infinite worth of the insignificant, the glorification and the exaltation of the nothing at all. If we study the famous 53rd chapter of Isaiah about the suffering servant, who is, after all, the, the living master, of course, how he takes our things upon him, right? He, carry, he, he carries our wounds, he, he carries our karma, although the, the biblical text doesn't use that word, but that is the idea, right? He says he was nothing. We looked at him and we think he's nothing. That's of course not the perspective of the disciple who loves. It's the perspective of the world. In the lifetime of the, now it does happen that, um, you know, when the lifetime of the master is over, that they become very famous and everyone then um, is only too eager to to fall in line, but what counts, of course, is what happens when he is actually on the earth. Sanchi has told a story of, of um, how he once, in his younger days, he, he uh, was wandering um, through part of the Punjab, or possibly Rajasthan, and he um, came to a a shrine of Guru Gobind Singh, and he um, stopped there and, and sat in meditation. And the people of the village realized that somebody was in there, and they got very upset. And they came out and they they forced him out of the of the shrine, and um, they you know grilled him as to what what he was doing there and. And he said that he was just meditating, and uh, um, but he added, you know, if if the one to whom this shrine is dedicated had been sitting here, you would have thrown him out too. And indeed, they would have. This is part of the point. I remember um, when I was first coming on the path years and years ago, my mother was still alive, and she had a very hard time with the fact that any any person alive in the world today could be comparable to Christ. And I was telling, I was saying, well, mother, just think about what it was like when Jesus was alive in this world. You know, he wasn't the way that we think of him. I mean, he, he wasn't glorified in an obvious way at that time. He was just there, you know, he was doing his work, he was loving people, he was taking them up, but he was there. And she had a very difficult time with that. She could not get past the concept of the, the, the Christ of glory. Well, that Christ of glory exists, you know, that's really there. We call it in Sant Mat, the radiant form of the Master. And indeed it is glorified, but it doesn't look that way unless 
you can go inside and see it. It's not there. You know, it's like if you compare the, the stories of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and also different the way that the crucifixion story is handled in the different Gospels too, you get the same sense. I mean, after all, crucifixion is is the the meanest death that was possible in those days, the equivalent of of electrocution or lethal injection or hanging today. It was capital punishment. You know, um, and in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is shown the centurion impressed by the way he dies says truly this man is a son of god in the gospel of matthew you have a whole bunch of miracles and the centurion is impressed by the miracles and he says truly this man is the son of god in fact the version of marx is almost certainly the way it was because you see the whole point of the crucifixion was not to impress anyone the, the impressing part came with the resurrection, but the resurrection didn't convince anybody who wasn't already connected to the Master. The, the crucifixion is what the world saw, and they were meant to, it was meant that way. The resurrection was seen by the lovers. And people, I, I teach religions at um, the St. Bonnie School in, in New Hampshire. And I often find that people assume that the resurrection was there to convince everybody of the truth of the matter and that and it worked, you know, that it did convince everybody. And that isn't the case at all. The resurrection is it was a manifestation of the true form of the Master, what we call the radiant form. And it was there to show those people who loved that nothing had really or ultimately changed, that the Master was still there for them. He had not gone away. He was available. It was not meant to convince anybody who did not already love him. And not one person in the Gospels is shown as having any connection with the resurrected form of Christ at all, except those who already loved him. Although the whole world saw, if it wanted to, the crucifixion. That's the way that it works. When the God of love and mercy and forgiveness comes into the fallen universe, the universe of the God of justice and what we call fairness, okay, giving everybody what they deserve. As Hamlet says, God help us if we all get what we deserve. Which of us would escape whipping? Which indeed? Uh, in the book, one of my favorite theological treatises, the book called Tick-Tock of Oz, um, uh, they're all... Uh, the Gnome King has thrown them, the various companions who are traveling down a tube to the other side of the world, ruled by someone called the Great Jinjin, who has no heart, but he has an absolute sense of fairness. 
and gives everyone exactly what they deserve. And he's always right. He's absolutely infallible. He gives them what they deserve. And when the companions realize where they are and who they are in the grip of, they get terrified, absolutely terrified. No one wants to get what they deserve. We only think we do if we haven't really gone into it. All of us are totally dependent on forgiveness and mercy, and that is why it is so important, so incredibly important, that we be willing to show forgiveness and mercy to others. In the course of doing that, in the course of forgiving, of loving, of giving other people the benefit of the doubt, of falsifying the accounts, as in the story of the unjust steward that Jesus told, of letting people get away with stuff. In the course of doing all that, we open up the channels in us that allow the forgiveness of God to come in and affect us. If we don't do it, if we refuse to forgive, then we are cutting off the forgiveness that is otherwise meant for us. There are many parables, not just in the Bible, but in the teachings of a great many masters that go to point this out. In the Dhammapada, it is said that hatred will never cease by hatred here below. Hatred can only cease by love. This is the eternal law. And that's the way it goes. We cannot wash dirt away with dirt. We cannot get rid of poison by giving more poison. Forgiveness undercuts the working of the negative power. The negative power is not evil, it is just. The law of karma is absolutely calculated to give everybody precisely what they deserve going over the, the whole sweep of the cycle of births and deaths that we are all involved in. We each get exactly what we deserve, and it's awful. And the God of love is not interested in giving us what we deserve. He's interested in loving us and in taking us back to where we originally came from. So it's a very, these are the assumptions that, some of them anyway, that result when the original assumptions are exploded. When the angle of vision is forcibly displaced, this is what it's displaced to. Okay? But the people in any given situation, the living master and the people whom he comes for, people whom he attracts, not necessarily only his formal initiates, but anyone who has any love for him at all, are within his reach, okay? And they're also started on the way. Um, that the meaning of history, the meaning of creation, the meaning of life 
is found in the presence of the living master and in the circle of his children. That is throughout the Bible. This is the underlying and consistent message. In the Buddhist scriptures, in the Hindu scriptures, in the Quran, in the Sikh scriptures, this is the message that when Jesus said, for example, to the Pharisee that, you know, who asked him when the kingdom of God was coming, he said, you can look for it. You can say it's here it is, there it is. But in fact, the kingdom of God is, and he used the word, or the, the Greek text has the word at any rate, which can mean either within or among. Okay? And both, both are true. We know that both are true. Kingdom of God is within us, but it's also among us. How is it among us? It's among us in the person of the living master. He moves amongst us, and he is the gateway to the kingdom of God. That's exactly what he is. And um, which means that wherever he is at, is the the axis mundi term that is used in religious scholarly circles to mean the center of the world okay that on which everything else hinges you know there's a story in the hindu tradition of uh, shiva and his two sons shamkartik and ganesh and they made a pact to see who could get around the world faster. They're going to race each other and go around the world. And Shamkartik took an eagle as his vehicle, his steed, and Ganesh took a rat. So Shamkartik started off. Everywhere he went, he found Ganesh there ahead of him. He couldn't get ahead of him no matter what he did. Finally, when they get back to the yeah, how did you do it? You were on a rat, I was on an eagle, I couldn't get ahead of you. What did you do? And Ganesh said, I just went around the master. He went around Lord Shiva, his master, and that was going around the world. Where the master was, was the center of the world, the axis mundi. Everything hinges on that. Truly speaking, this is what the babes can see. Okay? This is what is hidden from the wise men. This is what right after that Jesus says, all things are given to me of my Father, and no one knows who the Father, who the Son is but the Father, or who the Father is but the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Okay. This is exactly what is what is meant here. The Father knows the Son. The God of love knows the human pole, the you could say the subverter of the fallen universe through whom he is working, to whom he has allowed himself to overflow 
so that the personality of that human pole is subservient to the love of God, which is truly speaking what human beings were born to be. Master Kripal Singh used to explain that the term insan, okay, which is the term for human being, Urdu word for human being, in the book, in the pamphlet Man Know Thyself, in Urdu it was all insan apane apkujan, okay. Oh, human being, why don't you know your own self? Master Kripal Singh explained that word insan, translated as human being, means one who is overflowing with love, one who is bubbling over with love. That's the root meaning of the word. And he would say, that is what human beings are meant to be. Of course, that's what the master is. The master is the true human being. The, the exemplar, the model of what a human can be. But we also are called to be that. It is not that we are supposed to just believe in him and say, okay, I, I, uh, I believe in him, so uh, I'm fine. You know, I, I don't need to do anything more. This is the mistake that religionists make all the time. This is why Jesus said, it is not everyone who will say to me, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. People will say to me, Lord, I cast out demons in your name. I did this and that in your name. Deeds of power, right? And I will say, I never knew you. Huh? Because saying Lord, Lord to the Lord is only the first step. It is vital to learn what this, it is the, the recognition that enables us to say Lord, but that same recognition has got to keep going and bear fruit and also recognize what the will of that Lord is at any given moment. Yeah, and that is why um, it is in that that our recognition will mean something. It will mean something to us, it will also mean something to others. We have to be bubble over with love. We have to be open enough to the God of love so that the love that is his essence and ours comes forth from us. If we don't do that, then even though the Master may be real, even though we may really have recognized him, even though we may really love him, the whole thing is stifled and we don't live up to what we have been given. And we must. Because so much, the, you know, the people used to think, they used to believe in progress. I was a kid during World War II, and people still believed in progress then, even though the bloodiest 
the most awful war in history was going on and some of the cruelest and most hideous events ever were being done, still people tended to believe in progress. They thought that the world was getting better and better. You know, the masters say that actually the world is getting worse and worse, from the point of view of the wise men anyway. But that what can be getting better and better is the grace that can flow through the people who love the living God moving among us. Okay. That has the power to subvert the getting worse part. This is what is meant by the spiritual revolution. It's also what is meant by the kingdom of God coming with power. Okay. You know, in the, in the Bible, again, when... Jesus says there will be some people standing here, there are some standing here, who will see the kingdom of God coming with power. Just right after that, he takes Peter, James, and John, he goes up on a high mount, which Master Kripal Singh explained was not a physical mountain, but he took them within. And they saw the radiant form of three masters, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, all together. This was the kingdom of God coming with power. This was what Jesus meant. The fact of the masters, the fact that they have always come, that we know that they've come in the past because we have records of them, we know that they come in the present because we see them. Okay? The love of God continues to visit us. Granted, we can say that it camps out. Okay, That's what the word in the Gospel of John, where it says the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word dwelt actually means pitch a tent. Okay? It does not build a house in the same way that we do. The connection with the body is a little more tenuous than that. All right? He camps out. That's okay. Yeah, it's, it's what's required. He's there. He's camping out, but he's here. He comes down and pitches his tent, and he's among us, which is the, the word that counts there. The optional, the operational word, I would say. Anyway, um, this is what, this is how we know that the love of God continues to come. And sometimes we can see, just as Peter, James, and John saw, we can see our master in the company of masters of the past in just the same way. That's an experience that is open to people who go within. And um, then we can understand that, yes, this is the most important, the most foundational, the most basic fact in the universe, even though everybody who is not a babe, right, in the quote, would argue that this is silly. 
It's not what the world is about. Even if they believe in the past masters, they would say, just as when Jesus healed the man born blind, okay, the, the Pharisees, members of the religious establishment of the day that Jesus was functioning in, said to the man, we don't know who this guy is. We know who Moses is. We're Moses' disciples. And the, the man said, well, this is a funny thing, that you don't know who he is, but he healed somebody who was born blind. Well, we're all born blind. The master comes to take away our blindness that we are born with. The sin of birth is referred to in the bhajan of Mastanaji. You know, the sin of birth is the, what we are, the residue that we are born into, that we need help in getting ourselves free from. The help is there. We can have that help. And the master will take away our blindness. And people around us will say, well, we don't know who this guy is. We're followers of Jesus. It's like a, a complete and total recapitulation of exactly the things that happened when Jesus was here. And if we go back far enough, we would find that very similar things happened when Moses was here. In Moses' lifetime, people did not follow him um, without a lot of problems. Remember when he was leading them out, people were constantly carping away. Who knows what's going to happen to us? Let's go back to Egypt and, and, and have it safer and like that. We, we don't know who this guy is. He came out of nowhere. He's, he's lording us around. What is this? So this is what the masters have to contend with. This is why so many of them die deaths that are really very tragic, you know. They take on our karma, but uh, the point is that what they demand of the world that they move in is so radical, so revolutionary, so subversive, that they end up many times being put to death because the world can't stand it, cannot stand to be subverted in this way. But this is the message that Jesus, this is what is meant by the gospel. Talk about the gospel, and many people would have us believe the gospel consists of believing certain things, having certain kinds of emotional reactions to things. No, the gospel is being led out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The gospel is being shown how to go within our own selves and being expected to go there, to go within our own selves, meet the God of love as he functions in his radiant form at which everything is very clear and then uh, going with him to the third heaven, fourth heaven, fifth heaven, and seeing what the universe is really like.
because that is where our perspective can be shifted. So there are lots of stories that the Masters tell that illustrate this point. Many of them are in the Bible, many of them are elsewhere. But it is there for us. You know, it is not dependent on our deserts. None of us deserve what the Master gives us. Or you can say, if we take a, a different point of view, we can say, yeah, we deserve it from the point of view of our being human. Okay, We exist, and our existence is dependent on the grace of God. And therefore, from that point of view, we are getting only that which we were born to get. And uh, there is warrant for this in the writings of the Masters also. But that's, again, a subversive point because it subverts the um, the whole system, the setup of karma, the framework of so-called justice is depending, dependent on things that we do once we have fallen into the, the mock universe, right? The universe where nothing is real, where everything is a caricature. Not that the love of God can't be seen. I mean, it's everywhere we look if we know how to see it. Yeah. If our vision is illuminated by the grace of the living master, then we can see God's love everywhere. And we can see his, his beauty and his caring in the world of nature and in the love that human beings have for one another. We can, again, like the unjust steward, and the steward was, you know, in that story um, that Jesus tells, the steward was um, going to be fired by his owner. He thought, what, what, am I, what on earth can I do? What can I do? So he took all the bills that were owed that the people had, and he changed them. It, where one person owed 50 barrels of oil, he wrote 25. Where they owed this and that, he wrote much less. And he thought by doing so, he would make friends with them, they would have pity on him, recognize that he had done them a favor and help him out. Jesus said that that steward was commended by his master for his astuteness. He understood what had to happen. This is what, if we don't get hung up on what people owe, you see, which has to do with call only, with the negative power only, and we give them the benefit of the doubt, we give them our mercy, we falsify their accounts. When we do that, we are acting as though the things of karma 
don't matter. And when we really act like that, the beauty of it is that then they don't matter. And we are acting like the Master does. This is why, of all of the teachings, the teaching of forgiving others, sometimes expressed as not judging others, not criticizing others, not, in other words, imitating Kal, not invoking the law of karma against others, but rather imitating the Master, the God of love, who loves us regardless of what we have done. The Master knows very well what our karmas are. He understands that we have to pay them off as long as we're here. He does, I mean, he, he often will work it so that we don't have to pay them off fully, but just the extent that we do, he doesn't mind that, but he doesn't hold it against us. You know, he doesn't think person is unworthy or that person is bad. I've had so many instances of this with both Master Kripal and with Sanchi also, of how no matter what I had done, and they knew very well, you know, all of the ways in which, in which I let them down, they continued to love me. And that love of the Master working through one body and then another, that love, you know, that love ennobles us. That love makes it possible for us to be what we were born to be. That love makes all the difference. It is the, the essential fact of the universe. That love is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, the diversions differ in how the, the word is translated. The King James Version says, the darkness comprehended it not. But most people now think that it should be translated, the darkness could not overcome it. Because even though the way of things are that whenever the God of love is working through a living master in the fallen universe, that it will always seem as though it's very vulnerable and easily put out, you know, easily got rid of. The fact is that the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot squash it cannot quench it. And that's the essence of our own selves. So it's important, I think. I remember once, a year or so after I was initiated, I was overcome by, by deep doubt, okay? Um, I had, God knows there was no reason for it. I had had a very good year, really, considering that I had 
done about everything wrong that I could think of and had no intention to stop really but I had had a lot of grace and um, I should have I now realize of course um, understood how um, how much grace I had been given and I was but I was so overcome with this doubt it was almost an existential doubt you know it was like I was doubting my own worth you see sometimes that's the way we're working us we think like Groucho Marx always used to say that any club that would let him be a member wasn't worth belonging to it's something like that I think this is the central Actively, this is God's path. This this is what the universe is all about, and and I'm on it. You know, it's it's like how could, this is ridiculous. You know, this is absurd. And I I guess I was thinking something like that, and and the the, the whole absurdity of it was was really overwhelming me. So I had not yet met the master physically. So I went. Um, to see a man that I had a lot of respect for, a very wise man whom I had gone to as a therapist. And, uh, but I had come to know, I mean, after I, I began searching and got connected with, with the Master, and even, even before I knew about the Master particularly, but I, I was coming in, in contact with, with spiritual ideas and esoteric teaching and like that, um, I came to realize that he had actually uh, given me a lot of that, and that and that he had really prepared me very well for for coming into this. So I had a lot of respect for him as a counselor and as a person. And I went to see him. And I told him where I was at and what was going on. And he was very thoughtful, and he said. Um, He said, well, you know, it's like doubt is like a saw. You're up on a tree, you're out on a limb, and you start sawing it off. And that saw is, is your doubt. He said, uh, you know, it's, it's like the whole world is busy, active, and here you are sitting in a room by yourself and it seems like you're doing nothing and everybody else is doing all the worthwhile things but in reality he said to me what you are doing is trying to I forget the exact verb that he used but the noun was consciousness you know you are after consciousness and there's nothing in the world more important than consciousness. So let's you and me sit in meditation for a while, he said to me. And we did. Yeah. And that was exactly the right thing to do. So it's, it's easy to... What is the, uh, the exploding of assumptions, the 
displacement or subversion of the point of view is so enormous that it's easy at times to think this can't really be the way of it. You know, this can't really be. I mean, I, I don't know what to make of it, but I this can't. I mean, I can't have met God personally. I can't have have been in the company of the Word made flesh. It just, I mean, I'm just not like that. I mean, it's not like I'm, the, I'm not Peter. I'm not Aaron. I'm not Joshua. These kind of things don't happen to me. But they do. Because we are Peter. I mean, Peter, like Dharamdas, you know, is every man. Peter denied Christ three times, for heaven's sake, the night before the crucifixion. I mean, that's something any of us could do, right? And he did it because he was just like us. We can be in the company of the Word made flesh, and in fact, we have been in the company of the Word made flesh, and in fact, we're in the company of the Word made flesh right now, because wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there. And here we are, and he is right here among us. And those things can happen to us, and they do happen to us, and they will continue to happen to people just like us because it pleases the Father, the living God of the universe, who created it out of his own love. It pleases him to hide these things from the wise and the mighty and to reveal them unto the idiots. And that is why that they will continue and that people like us can be part of it and can partake of it. And I'd say, thank God. Thank God that it's like that. Thank God that God does care and does exalt the insignificant and the nothing. And turn, what does it mean? The last shall be first and the first last, if it doesn't mean this. So this is what the Master comes to do. And each one of us is the recipient of the grace and the love of the God who made us and who has never given up on us. Just as in the ocean of love, Kabir does not give up on Dharamdas. He is just like the father in the parable, does not give up on the prodigal son. Hmm? Nor did the shepherd give up on the one sheep that was lost. Nor did the housewife give up on the coin that was lost. They continued to hunt until they found it. And so God continues to hunt or fish for us. Master Kapal used that analogy once. He will not rest until he has us safely in his net. Right? He is the angler, the expert angler. He's going to catch us. He will catch us. Has to catch us. And he won't rest until he's caught us. That's uh, the way of it. And uh, and thank God.
I would say. <laughs>